Governor Bill Lee expresses intentions to introduce an abortion bill and a conversation with Tory Venable, whose conservative group is pushing criminal justice reform efforts. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of January 27th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. I am back on the podcast this week, but you have to forgive me. My voice is still not 100%, but we'll make do. My voice, in my mind, also sounds like it's underwater, but it could be these new headphones. Technical difficulties, sickness. Tis the season. So we wanted to kick off this week's podcast before we get to our conversation with Tori Venable, uh, largely on the major news from last week, and that was Governor Bill Lee getting up with roughly 70 Republican uh, lawmakers in the old Supreme Court chamber last week and announcing his plans to do something we don't know quite yet, but something on abortion. Natalie, give people the uh, details that we know of right now. Well, that something is going to have something to do with um, essentially bringing back the the controversial fetal heartbeat bill, which passed the House last year and never made it out of the Senate. Lieutenant Governor Raina McNally wasn't a fan of it, um, was concerned that the way the bill was written, it would wind up um, in court on what he called the losing side. And that that the Tennessee would just be responsible for paying uh, legal fees for Planned Parenthood, um, but this bill is going to bring back the fetal heartbeat provision, so banning abortions um, as early as six weeks when a fetal heartbeat can be detected, requiring an ultrasound uh, be shown to a woman who's seeking an abortion, and also banning abortion based on um, race, sex, or fetal abnorma- abnormalities such as Down syndrome. For all the uh, support or the show of support for this legislation, we should note, though, there is no actual bill right now. We don't know the ins and outs of this. These are ideas. And as the legislature, you know, uh, soon has its filing deadline, uh, we can either see that spelled out in in great detail or uh, one might imagine uh, a caption bill that will see this legislation evolve. One question, though, that I think will pose interesting um uh, you know, decisions and, 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 you know, issues within the Republican Party is whether to include, you know, exceptions for cases of rape and incest. Right. So as, as the bill stands or, or as the, the concept of the bill stands, because as you said, there's, there's been no bill introduced. Um, the intention is that from what I understand from speaking um, with people who, who know what it's going to be like, that there will be an exception for um, the life of the mother. That could also be taken out once it's filed. That could maybe not show up in the original bill. But the intention is that there will be an exception um, for the life of the mother. I, I can't see there being an exception um, added for rape and incest in that passing in, in this General Assembly. It, it, it's interesting because the issue uh, has certainly divided the Republican Party in recent years, as evidenced by uh, the standoff between the House and the Senate last year by this bill from Micah Van Haas and, and, and uh, Senator Mark Pody. Um, one of the interesting things with this is the backdrop of the sort of divisions that we've seen within the legislature and the governor most recently on refugee resettlement, um, the governor's decision on FMLA policy, which some people have said are, are, are very Democrat-like ideas. Uh, so this move might be throwing a bone to re- Republicans within the caucus uh, to try and conjure up support uh, in ways that, you know, we, we might not have seen a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating dynamics at play. So so while, while you have um, the governor potentially 
as some people might say, throwing a bone to um, some of the you know conservative members of the of the party. Um, we also have this this interesting story playing out with with what the the governor's relationship is going to be like with the the new House Speaker Cameron Sexton, who was notably not at this announcement. Um, many members of his caucus were other caucus leadership. William Lambert, Jeremy Faison, of course, uh, Lieutenant Governor, who says he will support this legislation. Um, he was also there, but Cameron Sexton wasn't. And, and Sexton said in a statement uh, that essentially he supports the governor's efforts on this issue, that this is an issue that is important to the caucus and Republicans in general, and that they will work together on this. What wasn't said was, A, uh, he had a prior engagement. Um, we found out about that through his office, Cameron Sexton's office, that uh, apparently obligated him to stick with that rather than join 70-some uh, of his colleagues uh, at that post. Podium. And B, uh, many people are surmising that there has been a chilly reception between the executive and uh, the uh, Sexton uh, new uh, speakership. And and that, you know, could be political. It could be personal. Um, we have asked uh, Speaker Sexton about that. He said that we have, you know, essentially different approaches uh, in a sense, but we continue to communicate. Um, there has been some speculation, of course, that Sexton is eyeing a run for governor. Uh, when I did a profile on him uh, last fall, I believe, that was even something that one of his closest friends and advisors had said, next is governor. Uh, so the big question, I think, for a lot of people in Republican circles is, when is that going to happen? It would be inconceivable for uh, Sexton to challenge Bill Lee if he were to run for re-election. But with that question mark being unknown, you might be seeing Cameron Sexton sort of aligning himself up in case Bill Lee does not run for re-election or in the event that he wants to run in six years. Yeah, which it would it would be very difficult to uh, to see Bill Lee not run for re-election. I, I can't imagine, but crazier things happen, I guess. There are also some people, though, that recently have told me that the governor may not be in love with this current job right now. I mean, it's very different than what he did uh, at his company, Lee Company, where you say something and it is gospel and everybody follows that. You can't really do that in the bureaucracy of state government. You, you like to think that the head of, of the state is sort of that, that person, but it isn't really that way in actuality, um, that there is just sort of the, the slow crawl of government. So uh, that's a storyline that we will continue to watch out for. And again, uh, we will continue to cover this uh, abortion bill as it comes to fruition uh, throughout this session. And real quick, before we get to our interview with Tori Venable, later on the podcast, you're going to hear an ad uh, for one of our sister publications, the Des Moines Registers uh, podcast that they have. Uh, they will have their caucuses in less than a week. This is sort of the primer. If you want to go over there and check out what's going on in Iowa, you're going to want to check out the Des Moines Registers podcast. Again, uh, we hope to be able to keep tabs on that. And we hope to also have one of their reporters on this podcast as we gear up for Super Tuesday in a couple of weeks. This week on the podcast, we have Tori Venable. She is the state director for Americans for Prosperity Tennessee. They are uh, one of the groups who've been most vocal, conservative groups that have been most vocal, um, calling for criminal justice reform. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to see you both. Tori, I wanted to, to jump right in and kind of regurgitate a conversation we had recently uh, when you stopped by uh, the Capitol Hill Press Corps. Um, one of the issues you guys have talked about for several years is uh, civil asset forfeiture. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so for listeners, tell them what this issue is and why it's important. So civil asset forfeiture is actually the process where law enforcement can seize your property without even charging you with a crime. Essentially, the property is deemed guilty, so it doesn't have the same constitutional rights a person does. It's a really overburdensome process. It violates people's constitutional rights, and this is something that we've engaged on as a state chapter for a very long time prior as a property under the property rights bucket, but now it fully fits under criminal justice reform. And and I think one of the interesting things in this discussion is that when I talk to some lawmakers, they sit there and they say, oh, no, 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 we don't have that. We got rid of that a couple of years ago. Um, we have state laws that prohibit it, but why is that not necessarily prohibiting the practice of it in Tennessee? So a couple of things. We, we did make some significant reforms, and they said cash alone is no longer grounds for seizure. But there's this federal loophole. So even in the states that have switched over to criminal asset forfeiture, which I don't think anyone has a problem with once someone's found guilty of a crime, if the, their property was used in the commission of a crime, no one has a problem with that. But even in the states that have switched over to criminal asset forfeiture, as long as that federal loophole is open, it's something that can just circumvent state law. And we've seen it in other states that that they've actually made these reforms. So we're trying to close the loophole now before we switch over to criminal asset forfeiture. So are local governments using this federal loophole of sorts? <clears throat> well, they don't really have to at this point. Okay. Um, but it's the other states that we've seen that do utilize it once, once these reforms actually take effect. Hmm. So have you guys in, in recent years received much, much pushback, like when you're trying to pass this here? Yeah, I mean, primarily from law enforcement agencies, they're actually dependent on a lot of these civil asset forfeiture proceeds to fund their drug task force units. And it's not about being anti-law enforcement. I mean, they should be funded appropriately through the transparent budget process. They should not have to rely on seizures to fund their departments. And, and what are you guys sort of hoping that will happen this session? I mean... So it's kind of wonky, but there's a few things. So even with the reforms that we made, if you wanted to try and get your property back, even if you weren't charged with a crime, you would have to pay a $350 bond to even get a hearing set up. Mm. So that's what I think that we'll actually be able to get rid of that piece of it. The bond? The bond, the okay. $350 bond, because a lot of these seizures are under $2,400. So by the time you figure in attorney cost, your time away from work, and the bond, it's not even worth pursuing. People just give up. Yeah. Okay. Um, continuing on criminal justice reform uh, in a way, um, you guys have said one of your priorities this year is going to be streamlining voting rights restoration. Absolutely. Um, from from what I've gathered, the governor, that, that's not one of his priorities for criminal justice reform this um, this session. That's what he has said, that that probably isn't going to be something that he's pursuing this year. Um, so tell us what you guys plan to do despite that. I know last year, um, Michael Curcio, Steve Dickerson had a bill to accomplish some of that. Um, I guess tell us what happened with that. I know that it's up uh, in committee this week. I was going to say, yeah, this week we're already up in committee on the full Judiciary Committee. So why did that not go anywhere last year? So we we lost the votes on the Senate side. I mean, there was too many questions, and especially with what was going on in Florida, they were there was a lawsuit pending in Florida. We wanted to make sure we did it the right way. And, so, and real quick, just for people that don't remember Florida, that was what, what was it to give hundreds of thousands of people the ability to to vote again? That and work? it was an automatic restoration mm -hmm. in Florida. It passed by a ballot initiative. So what we're looking at doing, it's, it, when I say streamlining, it doesn't change the people that are eligible to have their rights restored. There are four things that are always banned from voting in Tennessee, and that is rape, murder, voter fraud, and treason. Treason. I wonder how many charges of treason are you? Yeah, I'm thinking probably not that many, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I, 
Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so, yeah, the the process right now is pretty burdensome. You would have to jump through uh, multiple steps. And so the, we think there's a way to really streamline that process. So this year, how the bill is different is it, it unties legal fees and obligations from the voting rights restoration process because that's really where it was cumbersome. To, to go through this process. Would that include the, the requirement now that you have to pay all outstanding child support? Yes, that's part of it. So now, don't get me wrong. You still owe the legal fees and obligations. You still owe the back child support. It's just not using that to tie it to voting rights restoration. So it's essentially the same legislation that was that was moving through last year. You all are championing that again this session. Very similar. Uh, another piece of it is the victims, uh, victims Restitution Fund. So it came to our attention that a lot of times victims are not actually receiving restitution when it's ordered because the court collects their fines and fees first. So when there's an actual person, an actual person that is at a financial loss, if the judge orders it, they're actually usually the last person to get paid. So we think separating this out from it also to provide another civil course of action so the victims can actually get get paid what they should get paid is uh, a, an important component in fixing this legislation. What are some of the hurdles that people are bringing up? Like, why why are they saying, yeah, this is a terrible idea? So the biggest thing is, I mean, they're just apprehensive, uh, especially on the child support piece, because, I mean, it was passed with good intentions back in 2006. They said, oh, yeah, you have to be up to date on your child support, except you can look at all the research and show that this does not imp- increase people paying their child support. It does not increase compliance. If In fact, it's actually went down. And Tennessee is the only state that requires that, right? Only state yeah. in the nation. So it's not, even if you do everything you're supposed to do, you get off probation and parole, you get a job, you start paying your child support, you pay off your fines and fees. Even that, there's going to be a backlog of child support, and it's a very long time before people can pursue that. Hmm. So you you mentioned um, this this sort of got held up in the Senate last year. You didn't have the votes. What are you all doing to to convince people to get on board with this? So, like, what are the conversations you're having with senators um, to to try to change their mind on where they are about this? Well, just showing them the data, really, that it doesn't increase child support compliance. That's a big piece of it. And it's a, it's a really inefficient way for government to be operating. So you've got the Secretary of State that's having to verify with Department of Human Services if people are up to date. And it's just a lot of wasted taxpayer resources going through something that's not proven to be effective at all. Have there been any lawsuits filed over this? I mean, it sounds like it's it's ripe for saying I'm being disenfranchised. I believe the ACLU actually filed a lawsuit a, a long time ago against this, but it was, you know, they did not win that case. Mm-hmm. So it was upheld then. It's just one of those things that we see it's not working and there's got to be a better way. So that's what we're working towards. And, and is this one of those efforts that you guys are joining forces with the ACLU on? Oh, yeah. A lot of our criminal justice mm-hmm. reform packet, you know, uh, the executive director of the ACLU and I have become pretty good friends over the past couple of years over this and civil asset forfeiture. And so we share, we while we come at it from very different perspectives, we share the same end goal. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you guys' um, health care reform priorities. So we've heard uh, Speaker Cameron Sexton say that one of the issues he wants to tackle this year is, um, I guess, essentially repealing the certificate of need laws that are on the books now. So how about you give us just a brief explainer on what those laws are and why, in you guys' opinion, those are problematic here. Okay, absolutely. So certificate of need laws are 
laws that enable the competitors to basically decide whether or not another hospital or any other healthcare related business is going to be able to open in their neck of the woods. It is completely anti-competitive monopoly. Uh, it is just the worst of both worlds. It is not a free market. So we would we would love to see it repealed. We've seen it repealed in multiple other states. They actually have lower healthcare costs and increased access to healthcare, which we all know are very important things. And uh, it's just a con on taxpayers. So, I mean, part of our hashtag is in the con because it is a con on taxpayers, the fact that we still allow monopolies to exist in Tennessee like that. So do you know off the top of your head any examples of how this has played out in Tennessee and caused problems in certain areas that, that don't have, um, you know, all of the, the medical resources they need? Yeah. So uh, that I think Bradley County is a good example. They were trying to open a hospital. And they were not able to open the hospital because another hospital just, you know, right down the road said it was going to take their business away. They were not going to be able to remain open. And, you know, we've seen hospitals closed when we didn't expand Obamacare. And, you know, that's a a large part of that is they made the, the bad deal to take a cut in their Medicare payments and they have an unsustainable business model. And as long as we allow them to have a anti free market approach, these hospitals are going to continue to close. They need to innovate and they need to provide this, uh, you know, these satellite emergency rooms. That's something that would actually be really beneficial in rural areas. But you, you don't necessarily need the, uh, the you know, premier heart hospital in a rural area. There's places that people go for that. And it, yeah. Can those satellite facilities open given this uh, certificate of need or... or- So, yeah, no, they cannot. Uh, That's a piece of it. And also there's a CMS rule that says it can't be more than 35 miles away from a standard hospital. So that's something at the federal level that needs to be fixed. But, you know, the Trump administration has also put out guidance and said get rid of the CON laws. We've seen Oklahoma. A lot of other states have immediately repealed them. And, you know, we get the argument all the time saying, oh, well, it's just going to cause more healthcare facilities to close. And you hear it time and again, and that they make the argument that we don't have a free market in healthcare, which I agree, we don't have a free market in healthcare. But continuing to put government's thumb on the scale is not going to fix this. We need to back off of it. And so, wh- where's the Lee administration at on this issue? I haven't really talked to them a whole lot about the healthcare portion of our packet. I mean, honestly, this is the biggest fight that we're going to have this year. So you've got you've got some really entrenched entrenched interest that want to make sure that things remain the status quo. So you guys are getting opposition from the hospital industry. Is that? Oh yeah, is absolutely. That, what, what, who else is against <laughs> insurance? I imagine. Yeah, the, all the big boys. Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> everybody except for the people that would actually benefit. So, I mean, uh, we do have, so like home health care providers, that's another one. We have CONs for things beyond just hospitals. Even for to be a home health care provider, you have to have a certificate of need to show that you're going to serve these populations. And the fact that you would have to go through uh, a process that takes uh, as long as it takes, I mean, up, upwards of 90 days right now, and thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, you're looking at at least $80,000 in many instances as just the starting point. I mean, it, it's a intendable aspect for these people to be able to innovate and expand where they should be able to. And then one more point I'd like to make with these hospitals that have closed, they have a CON. They still hold the CON and can still block other hospitals from opening in the areas where they hold the CON. Hmm. And the proposed change gives them, I think, six weeks or even longer. I mean, if they're not, if they're going to close the hospital, how are you going to block someone else from opening medical services in the area? 
it's it's not right. It is a con. So I think this is an issue that um, a lot of us are just now learning about. Like I don't think m- many people are aware what the current CON structure is. So what um, entity, what agency, what individual is responsible for issuing those certificates? That is a complicated question. Uh, and I don't have the name exactly of the board. I know Logan Grant, we've worked with so it's him. it's a state on, board. It is a state okay. board. They're, they're part of it. But also the, the folks that currently hold CONs, they are part of the deciding factor onto whether or not their competitors can open a business within the same marketplace. That's oh, the wow. problem. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like a that doesn't seem like a, a great structure. No, not really. You, you kind of alluded uh, and mentioned uh, the Affordable Care Act before. I, I mean, you've heard Democrats sit there and say for years that the state needs to uh, recognize these rural hospital closures, and one of the issues that can address that is expanding. What would you guys say to that? Uh, we would say that expanding and, uh, you know, further putting government's thumb on the scale of the healthcare market is not the way to go. We need to look at a free market approach, ending certificate of need, expanding telemedicine, expanding direct primary care, uh, even giving nurse practitioners full practice authority, uh, which is another really hot topic. So these are these are all things that we think could actually lower costs and improve access. And I mean, let's look at the reality of the subject. We are in a deep red state. They're not going to expand Obamacare in Tennessee. I, I will point it's out. It's happened in other red yeah, states. Yeah, several red states recently. Well, it's not going to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the buzzwords you just mentioned was telemedicine. We have heard about telemedicine over and over from the governor's office, um, certainly from Republican leadership, that, that that is going to be the future of expanding healthcare access in the state. Um, as far as it goes, like from a legislative angle, what is the state's role in that? Like, what kind of legislation are you all um, backing, supporting that would touch on telemedicine? So we need to make sure it's done the right way. Um, and I've, I've got the legislation and I've, I've looked at it briefly. But I mean, a lot of times you've got different partners in this and they want to incorporate a parity for an office visit, which is not going to do anything to reduce cost. And frankly, a telephone phone call a tel- with your existing provider is not going to expend the same resources as going into their offices. So to say that insurance has to pay something at parity as an office visit is not right. Uh, that's one of the things that we need to look out for with it. We need to make sure that people can actually use it from their homes or with their existing existing doctors. So uh, I'm pretty encouraged by the bill that we've seen this year, and I think that we should be able to get everybody on the same page with it. How difficult can it be, though, in a state that still has so many areas that are lacking broadband access, right? That not this issue kind of hand-in-hand? Hand? I mean, to an extent, but I mean, how many people have iPhones? Most people have iPhones, and they can FaceTime. I would make the argument a lot of people in the uh, more rural areas, I don't know that they do. And and don't have great data connection. Right, right. Uh, You know, when I worked for the state, I worked for Jeremy Faison in Cock County. And, uh, you know, I saw I saw that gap there. But I, I would think from the cellular side, I mean, that's not really something that I've experienced because who doesn't have a, either Android or iPhone that's capable of FaceTime type? Well, I, I went to the Governor's Rural Opportunity Summit in Perry County this fall, and I, I did not have service there all day long. And certainly counties like Perry County, and they are, um, they're labeled distressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, would, that certainly would still be a, an ongoing issue for a lot of people. It is. And I mean, one of the other things I think they're, they've looked at is like this, uh, what do they call it, a mobile 
uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but basically it's where they could take your blood pressure. You could, the technology would be set up at somewhere like a CVS or a pharmacy where it's something that could be in that local community, maybe not as, as much as a doctor's office, but then you would Once have- Once a week or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, that you you could show up and, you know, because I think that's another component of it. A lot of times they need to check your blood blood pressure and temperature and make sure that, you know, there's not something else going on other than just your standard sinus infection that you get once a year. So the the, the telemedicine legislation you've seen this year, um, who's who's filing that? Uh, Representative Robin Smith has it on the House side. And forgive me, I'm drawing a blank on the Senate sure, side. Yeah. So that, that legislation essentially um, will put in place rules for for billing, for insurance, for like what, what else is covered in that? Well, it, it expands where you can do it from. So we actually passed a telemedicine bill um, previously, but it was very limited on where you could you could do the phone calls from. It had to be from like a registered site or uh, almost from a doctor's office. So how is that going to actually benefit people that either travel a lot for work uh, or just don't have don't have the means and the ability to go into a doctor's office that's 35 miles away? What else do you think is going to be big this session that you guys are, are championing? So we are really championing open enrollment. You know, last year we had the education savings account bill. And while we would love to see educational freedom expanded to every kid across the nation, by the time that uh, bill crossed the finish line, it only included two counties. So open enrollment, it is a policy. It's essentially public school choice. A lot of our counties already do this or have some some version of it with zone exemptions. So we want to basically streamline that process again so that the schools can say how many open seats that they have. The parents have a designated time at the beginning of each school year where they could register their child for another school within the same district. We don't get into the whole fight over money if you're still talking about the same school district. And I think it's something that I've, from us talking to folks, uh, legislators and lawmakers, even ones that don't support ESAs or vouchers, they are fully in support of open enrollment. So uh, I, I think this is a good next step to provide some measure of choice to families in our state. Have you guys um, pushed legislation like that in the past, or is this the first year? First year. Okay. So who's going to be carrying that legislation this year? I believe Representative Bill Dunn and uh, Senator Gresham. And, and you guys have gotten a, a positive response so far? When we're talking about the idea, of course, you know, devil's in the details. We don't draft legislation. We talk about the ideas and see what comes back. Um, but, yeah, as we're talking through the ideas with many legislators, they're very supportive of it. Well, thank you again for uh, coming in, talking to us about your various priorities for this year. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. The Iowa caucuses are next week. Catch up on the race with three tickets, the Des Moines Registers Caucus podcast. We'll be hearing from candidates. Hello, Iowa State Fair! Political insiders. It can rocket you out of obscurity. And Iowans themselves. Holy cow. You know, I mean, we had an hour and a half with a presidential candidate. This is how the caucuses work and why we care so much about them. You can listen to Three Tickets wherever you find podcasts. Governor Bill Lee last week signed the controversial adoption bill that would allow religious adoption agencies to deny same-sex couples. Uh, the governor did so after returning from California. Former lawmaker Jeremy Durham is still under investigation by the Department of Justice, according to emails recently obtained by the Tennessean. Former ambassador to Japan and current U.S. Senate candidate Bill Haggerty has dropped his first statewide television ad, the ad is running on cable and it may expand.
And finally, the state of Tennessee is looking at allowing people to get their driver's license by utilizing technology like advanced appointments and text messages while they're waiting in line. That could come online in a pilot form as early as February. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us. Uh, we also are encouraging people to send us questions, ideas, subjects we want or they want us to cover on this podcast. So email either Natalie or I. Uh, I'm at jebert at tennessean.com. Gbert and I am Nallison, N-A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at Tennessean.com. You can, of course, also find Grand Divisions on Twitter, at Grand Divisions 3, where you can send us messages or just shout at us on there, and we hope to either respond or we'll bring up some of those issues on the podcast and future dates. Uh, as always, uh, these, these episodes are produced by Erica Whitney and John Garcia. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. I'm Joel Lieber. And I'm Natalie Allison.